and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Stephanie Kuntz is the author of five books on gender, family, and history, including Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage, which was cited in the U.S. Supreme Court decision on marriage equality. She's the director for the Council on Contemporary Families, as well as Emeritus Faculty of History and Family Studies at the Evergreen State College in Washington. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. So you are a historian researching one of the oldest, but also as compared to today, one of the institutions that perhaps has changed more than any other. So to begin, I'd love for you to just give us an idea from the practical to perhaps some of the comical ways in which the traditions and expectations of marriage has changed? Well, there are so many ways. I mean, there are so many illusions about what is traditional marriage. You know, what the big debate over same-sex marriage, one man, one woman. Actually, if you look through the ages and count up the different societies and ask what kind of marriage they most approved of, the one that comes up most often is one man, several women. But marriage has also been between one woman and several men. Many societies have ghost marriages where a live person is married off to the ghost of a uh, deceased person. And the reason you get all this variation is when you actually look at the history of marriage. And when I was researching it, I looked at all the theories and some at first people said, well, it was invented to protect women. And then later we found out that it actually very often oppresses women. And anthropologists pointed out that in many societies, it's actually women who provide 60 to 90% of all the group's calories. So then the next theory was it was invented to oppress women. But the more I looked at it, the more I became convinced that it was actually invented to get (laughs) in-laws, which Mm -hmm. is why they were very creative about doing that. So it was a way of, in earliest peaceful foraging societies, it seems to be a way of making sure that you had relatives in every band that you encountered so that you knew that you had obligations to them and from them. For example, in Anglo-Saxon history, the word wife means peace weaver. In other societies, as you got more stratification, uh, marriage became increasingly a way of getting alliances with the right in-laws. In a peaceful band-level society, I really wouldn't care who my son married, but he had to marry out of the group or my daughter had to marry out of the group. 
But once there's stratification and I'm in, say, the top 10% of a group, I certainly don't want my child to marry down. If they're marrying into another group, I want him to marry someone in the top 10, preferably in the top five. And at that point, marriage becomes this way of gathering in-laws. And in some societies, it was such an important way of establishing political and social alliances and economic pooling capital that, as I said, if you engaged your kids at a very young age to two families that wanted an alliance and one of them died, you'd just go ahead and marry them to the ghost. And then uh, if it's a woman, she could have other affairs, but they would be related to the original kinship family. So those kinds of things went on for thousands of years. And for thousands of years, marriage was really not about love. Love was kind of an extra. But of course, young people do fall in love in most societies. And people have often dreamed about being able to marry someone they love rather than someone whom their parents needed, although many young people also married for convenience. So really since about the era of the Enlightenment, and especially with the rise of wage labor, that allowed a woman to forego the dowry from, you know, if your, your parents didn't want you to marry someone, they wouldn't give you a dowry. And if you were a man, they wouldn't give you a plot of land to settle on. But once you had wage labor, you could defy your parents. You could uh, set up a house earlier. And gradually with new ideologies about the rights of the individual, the idea emerged that people should marry for love and that parents and the older generation shouldn't dictate to them. But even so, there have been tremendous variations. Recently, when Anthony Kennedy legalized same-sex marriage in his majority opinion, he had all this romantic stuff about why we need marriage. And as far as I'm concerned, he made the right decisions for exactly the wrong reasons. He was talking about how historically it had been this protection for people, the most sacred kind of commitment you could enter into. Well, not true at all. It was really something that did, for thousands of years, oppress women. Women were sometimes expected to be faithful. Men were very seldom expected to be faithful. Men had authority over women. They owned the property that, that a woman brought in marriage. What has changed and what was the real reason, it seems to me, to grant same-sex marriage is that in the last hundred years, we've increasingly seen marriage as an individual right. And in the last 40 years, we've begun to say it doesn't have to be between a man who is legally obliged to do one sort of thing, but not anything else, and a woman who is legally obliged to obey, but doesn't have equal rights in the outside parts of the marriage. So that once you've done that and opened the way to truly a marriage that is based upon individual love, you've also opened the way to getting past a gender stereotype. Right. And that part about marrying the ghost, I remember in your book, A History of Marriage, getting to that part. And I was walking down the street laughing out loud because it talks about how marriage was this kind of oppressive, daunting concept for a lot of women. And so in a family, if, as it says, one of the sisters had already declared herself a spinster, all the others had to marry off. And when one of these options was the ability to marry a deceased man or his spirit or the ghost in order for his family to have daughter-in-law and for the girl's family to have these in-laws, the woman would vie over who got to marry the dead man so that they wouldn't have to give up all their independence to be in what at the time a marriage was like with a living man. 
<laughs> yes, that, I found that very amusing too. You would read these oral histories of women just at, in China when the silk industry um, began to develop. Women got a certain amount of independence. That's the historical route to independence for women is these niches of taking their, their traditional women's work in the home outside and being able to earn wages for it. And many of these women silk workers did not want to obey the Confucian law of the three obediences, which is first you obey your father, then your husband, then your son. So when they heard of a good family that had lost a son that they thought their parents would approve of their marrying into, they reported that they would buy with each other to get there first and, and make sure that they got his hand in marriage instead of a, a live oppressor. <laughs> live oppressor. And then there were even mentions of where... You know, the family didn't have any more children left, so they would marry off a foot of somebody or even the dog. So just comical. That, that, was, much, that was much more rare. But yes, there are a couple <laughs> of indigenous societies that did that because it was a way of establishing trading partners. And there was absolutely no sense that this was a marriage that would involve sex or love or anything. It was just a way of saying, we recognize that we have a special relationship with this family that sets up obligations on both sides. And creates, you know, reciprocity and resources in a way that, interestingly enough, when you look back and think about how not desperate, but proactive, even more so people were in seeking out resources outside their home, outside their bloodline to create this community. And then today's society, the ways in which perhaps we've become more interfocused and our communities are less widespread in a way digitally more broad but in terms of you know how many close friends we go to or how many people we count on for shared resources or help the number of people in the United States say that they could call up any day if if they needed them has actually been going down over the past few decades and so it, the interesting discrepancy between these two styles? Well, there's so many trade-offs in history. Actually, I've been reading a lot of very new research since uh, I wrote my last books that suggests that kinship wasn't the cause of uh, sharing, but the outcome of sharing. It now appears that the most ancient ancestors, foraging ancestors, moved back and forth between households and not all blood related, but at a certain point you eat together, you share, you call each other kin, and then that mm. becomes a way of extending sharing and codifying it and institutionalizing it, which is great for a small scale society. But as you say, when you begin to get the kind of mobility and market society that we have, you have to go beyond kinship. And I think one of the progressive things about the development of free market and capitalism was that sense that obligations have to extend beyond who you're related to. They have to be objective. Of course, at a certain point, on the other hand, you get the extension of the market economy to everything. <laughs> and that mm -hmm. begins to undermine some of these personal ties. But what you say about friends and family is interesting to me because I'm also doing a lot of research right now on the sorts of social ties that people need and that really make us feel good. And one thing that I have known for a while is that it's your friendship. It's not whether you have a partner, not whether you're married, that determines how you do as you age and mentally and physically, but how wide your social networks are. And of the social networks, friendship networks are even more important than family networks. And I suspect that's because 
you can get rid of a friend who's not supportive, who, who is stressful, but it's harder to get rid of a family mm. member. So it does, these voluntary ties that you're talking about are becoming increasingly important to us. And some of our technology and our consumerism is getting in the way of that. I worry, for example, just about the extent to which we are losing informal interactions that somebody once called consequential strangers. It turns out that if you interact with somebody just to exchange pleasantries, that improves your mood for not only a day, but sometimes for a week. And as we have apps do everything <laughs> of our interaction with other people, mm-hmm. I think we may be losing that kind of really important contact with people who are not deep friends, but with people who just reinforce the fact that we are members of a community, that we have social interactions with other people. Yeah, I just chatted the other day with Nick Epley, who studies exactly that. And they've done some of these studies on the Metro where they require people to talk to a stranger during their commute. And while everybody predicts they will be much less happy talking to a stranger and that the stranger will not be very open to talking to them, they essentially had a 100% response rate from the strangers. The strangers were much more open to talking to them and wanting to learn and exchange information and connect with these people than they had expected. And everybody also basically reported, regardless of being an introvert or an extrovert, being happier in the instance of being forced to talk to a stranger rather than than sitting on their own. And so reminders of these small benefits and in the happiness research that it's not actually the depth of the happiness experiences that really, really is what contributes to our overall well-being and happiness, but the frequency. Yes, yes. I didn't know that particular study, but there's lots of other evidence that shows the same thing. And so I sort of get it worried when all you interact with are Series and Alexis <laughs> and ordering things I don't. I I haven't had much much luck interacting with. Never used Siri, but Alexa. Whenever I'm at my brother's house, she doesn't seem to understand anything anyone is saying. So, <laughs> <laughs> so kind of going back a bit more into the history and these other very interesting cases. There's also in your research, you talk about how same-sex marriages were widely accepted in cases in which one of the persons in the relationship had taken on a traditional gender role. So it was more a gender marriage versus a sex-based marriage. Can you elaborate Mm -hmm. a bit more on that? Uh Uh-huh. Well, first of all, we should be cautious about using traditional gender roles because of gender division labor. It's been around for a long time, but it's not always been the same. It's very stereotyped, perhaps stereotyped Um, gender roles. Well, most societies have found in the past that there's some efficiency to some kind of gender division of labor. The earliest societies that hunted with surrounds, where the entire group surrounds an animal and an animal herd and gradually moves them into some kind of trap where they can easily be dispatched. That was pretty much the whole ban would take place. But once you get projectile weapons and some people going out to hunt from which you can come home, you know, really successful and share with the whole group, or you may come home, but not having gotten anything that began to be divided. And it made sense for women to be the ones who continued gathering. You didn't have to put down your baby to run after an animal and you were less likely to 
risk injury. So you get these kinds of divisions of labor and some societies have different ones. For example, the idea that the traditional division of labor was the male breadwinner, the female staying at home is completely wrong. Right up until the 18th century, uh, late 18th century, a man never described himself as a, a sole provider unless he was asking for pity because his wife was not available to share the labors on the farm or the business. But the point is that, yes, because most societies have had some division of labor by gender, many of them accepted same-sex marriages if one wanted to play the gender role of the other. In other words, if I wanted to act, as in Africa, as a female husband, I wanted to be the ones who raised the cows, or I wanted to be a hunting woman, then I might take another woman for my wife to do the more traditional female roles, and it would not be considered a same-sex marriage. <laughs> so, right. And some of those same-sex marriages, as far as we can tell, act- the actual sexual attractions uh, were heterosexual, some were same-sex, but there was a tremendous variety. What's really new in the history of marriage, and one of our best opportunities, but our biggest challenges, is that for the first time ever, we have decided that marriage is something that everyone has a right to do, but also the option not to do. And we've decided that marriage ought to be based upon a mutuality of service right up until the 1970s. I think most people probably know that a man could not be charged with rape because a woman owed sexual services to her husband. And so legal definition of rape in all states of America and around the world, most of the world, was Uh, forcible sexual intercourse with someone other than your wife. Now, we've changed that. Perhaps even more importantly, we've begun to change the rules. In America, we've abandoned them completely now. The idea that men had more rights to decide what happened to the community property than the woman did. And at the very latest change, and this is where it became gender neutral, it used to be that women owed comfort consortium it was called comfort services around the home to the man and if if she died he could sue for the loss of her consortium the man owed breadwinning and if he died she could sue for breadwinning to compensate for anyone who caused a death and lost her access to his wages but vice versa you couldn't sue the other way around And that changed in the 70s and 80s. And now really how we define marriage is that it's an association of equal people who can decide who does what outside the home and inside the home. And increasingly, a majority of people uh, believe that those things should be shared and that that's the basis of a satisfying marriage. And the most recent research shows that it is. There's been a tremendous transformation in just 40 years. Back in 1992, when they collected Uh, studies of marriages over the long trend, they found that people who had the very traditional 19th century traditional division of labor, where the man was the breadwinner and the woman did the housework and the childcare, they reported the highest marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction. And the people who had different arrangements, including more egalitarian ones, were less satisfied. But in marriages formed since the 1990s, the opposite is true. The couples who are most satisfied and report the best sex and the the highest marital satisfaction are the ones who share breadwinning, child care, and housework. But of course, we still don't share equally. 
So that's what I meant by the greatest opportunity and the greatest challenge. This represents a real opportunity for people to enter into a relationship that does not deprive them of one half of their human potential and say, you only have to do this kind of thing because it suits your gender stereotype. But at the same time, it says you can decide how you're going to divide things yourself as individuals. And it turns out that you will be much happier if you do this in an egalitarian way. And yet we have all these old tapes in our heads that tell us that men have to do this and that we women are better at that. And of course, baked into all of our institutions, especially in the United States with its lack of parental leave policies, but in the way we organize work and school hours, everything is the assumption that this actually relatively aberrant family form of male breadwinner, female homemaker is the way that the future will be organized. And so it's very difficult for us to break out of these patterns that stand in the way of what seems to make most couples happier. So much to go off of there, but in the beginning was taking note in my head about how not only was marriage a sharing of resources, but a sharing of skills. And basically, as you described it, almost just a division of labor, quite frankly, is what it was. And it also kind of led to these highly specialized relationships or almost agreements in which in your book, you give the example of if you were raised in a family as a baker, then perhaps you would look for a partner who had some complementary baking skills so that you could really specialize into both of your strengths and collaborate sharing those resources and skills. Um, yes, and those were, those were actually forerunners of dual earner marriages, unlike mm-hmm. the 19th century, when if you once you've got wage labor, if you made your money in a bakery as a man, you would go out and your wife would stay home and process and use and all of the money that you brought in. So, yeah. And it's interesting because it seems while we have now come to expect so much more from that one person, we have also continued to expect them to be specialized, but in more things with kind of a wider range of skills, not being like a generalist, but a generalist who is specialized in everything that they can do, you know, for example, from being a mentor or coach type personality to comforting support system to sexual connection to all of these things that as Esther Perel famously refers to as being the things that an entire village used to provide rather than just one person. Yes, that's an interesting point. You know, people often say to me, um, our expectations of marriage are too high. And I usually uh, (laughs) blanch when people say that because after studying marriages of the past, when expectations were low, I know how bad (laughs) it can go. (laughs) But I think that the real issue is that as we have expanded our expectations of marriage in good ways, that we expect a fairness and intimacy and equality that was not there in the past. At the same time, especially recently, we have developed into a society that is expecting less from the other members of our community, from the corporations who used to be expected to stay in the same community that they were employing people in and no longer have any that kind of loyalty. The social safety net has been declining and the emotional safety net has been declining as 
we live in an increasingly volatile, precarious economy with an ideology on the part of political leaders, which is that it's every man or woman for him or herself. And you don't succeed, it's just because you didn't try enough and we don't have time to stop and lend you a hand. So under that kind of circumstance, and then you pile on top of it all the technology and the speed up and the fact that you can't even talk to a real person on the phone anymore. And we are indeed having to expect a lot of other emotional input from our spouse. And so when people tell me we expect too much of our partner, I say, no, I think we expect too little of our society, our community, and our friendship networks, and that we need to learn to expand those and cultivate them the same way that we cultivate our marriages. We work on our marriages, but we don't work uh, so much on our other relationships. Yeah, I love that. And in terms of going back to talking about resources, other people and our close relationships are the most important and valuable resources we have. So really making sure that we continue to cultivate those other relationships outside of our partnership, which in turn actually help solidify and strengthen that, you know, romantic partnership as well. Yes, they do. But I want to go back to this study that you quoted earlier too. Our interactions with strangers are very important too, because they establish certain base level of trust that means you are not always looking for reassurance from your close friend or your partner or whatever. When people feel that they live in a world where they have things in common, where they can talk to people, it's a much more trusting and relaxed atmosphere. But I agree with your last point that, ironically, focusing on strengthening your relationship with other people actually will strengthen the relationship with your partner. And studies show that people are most satisfied with their partner when they do things outside the home with their partner and socialize with people other than their partner and socialize together and learn new things about new people. So this is a win-win situation if we can avoid the temptations of sitting and streaming uh, movies on television mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> right. And you actually have an article in the New York Times titled For a Better Marriage, Act Like a Single Person, which isn't totally what it sounds like for anybody listening who might immediately be uh, doubtful. But it's exactly about the mentality of continuing to explore new things, going out, being social, not just relying on that one person. And in a way, it's almost continuing also to focus on your relationship with yourself. Emma Watson, I recently heard a piece where she says, instead of saying she's single, she says she's self-partnered because she's focusing on her relationship with herself, which is debatably our most important relationship and the foundation of any strong partnership. So thinking about how even in those partnerships, we can continue to grow, learn, explore with our partner and with ourselves. Yeah, now I understand why Emma would say that, but, uh, you know, one of my passionate uh, conclusions, it's not just an assumption, (laughs) it's a conclusion that I've drawn from my study of history, is that there's no such thing as a self-made person or a self-partnered person. There can be self-contained and self-assured and self-directed people, but all of that comes from having had relationships with others. 
not necessarily romantic relationships. So that's, I think, what Emma's trying to say. So you can be a complete person without romantic relationships. Yes, yes. Or even just as, you know, a relationship status instead of single, which gives the illusion of you're on your own while looking for other people or in no relationship versus, well, no, I'm using this time to take what I've learned from past relationships or, you know, focus on the other relationships with other people in my life or most importantly, dig deeper within myself. It being a term referring to a process, maybe I would say. I guess, I guess I would just want to underline and I doubt that you would disagree with me that digging deep into yourself is probably not the best way to get happiness. Digging deep into the things that bring you meaning and satisfaction, reaching out to others, not in relationships even, but doing things that are meaningful, doing things that help other people. That is, I think, so important to establishing yourself as an individual. And this is why people who think that when they meet the partner, they will be fulfilled are... Mm -hmm. uh, for a big disappointment very shortly after the honeymoon wears off because unless you're finding meaning and fulfillment in your own activities and interactions with the world not just with your navel <laughs> you're not going to, to go very far and i think part of that though is figuring out you know what it is that brings you joy or what your passions are that sometimes requires or is helped by taking time on your own. So sometimes not everybody knows that. And so it's taking that time to discover those things. And then exactly as you mentioned, being able to lean into them more and yeah, focusing on becoming a, an I before you try and become a we and realize that when you're not using those resources and, and having those important value driving behaviors and experiences on your own that another person can't necessarily give you all of that either. That's right. And I think, you know, this happiness research that you, you've obviously been talking about with other people suggests that when you actually focus on pursuing happiness, you're less happy than when you focus on pursuing meaning and doing something that makes you feel that you're contributing. The people who give something away get much more satisfaction out of that than people who go and spend it on themselves. Um, there's actually a selfish reason to be unselfish. <laughs> right. And I think it's interesting because as you said, focusing on being happy and immediately I was like, yeah, because what, what does that even mean? You know, what is the meaning of happiness? And then I remembered from the research, it is finding purpose and just doing things that you feel connected to and connecting with other people. So, And bringing back to marriage, it's increasingly clear that it is the people who have that kind of purpose on their own who would, who do best as singles, who actually also do best if and when they decide to partner. So mm. a lot of times in America, you get a lot of people who want to promote marriage. They think it will be the solution to poverty, to loneliness. You know, I think that at all <laughs> levels, they are misusing social data in a really, really bad way. But one of the things that is really, really clear is that um, most of the good effects of marriage are what we call selection effects healthier people tend to get married. <laughs> people who, who have good relationships with themselves and with the world tend to have better relationships with other people. And so when people say to you, oh, you'll be so better off if you're married, they're usually comparing a sample of some people who are single because they want to be single 
but they're not selecting them out. They're lumping them in with people who are unhappily single and would be unhappily married Mm -hmm. and with people who are divorced or usually less happy than people who never married at all. So I don't think anybody should be bullied in thinking that the marriage is going to solve their problems or fooled in thinking that it will be. But once it's entered into, marriage today can be a really rewarding experience precisely because it's no longer a mandatory experience and you can live quite well without it. That's the interesting, fun paradox. Right. And for some reason, what popped into my mind when you said, uh, you know, isn't mandatory. It's interesting now too. I mean, divorce wasn't even legal in a lot of places until somewhat very recently, let alone socially acceptable, at least in places like the US now where it's almost joked about or more commonplace. It almost seems not only is getting married not mandatory, but staying married almost isn't mandatory. And I'd be curious what your thoughts are in terms of people going into or considering going into the institution of marriage. I guess what kind of outlook you think is more beneficial? Well, this is a very complicated thing. Um, Let me just step back and show you a pattern that's emerging globally. And that is that as women begin to get education and economic independence and more freedom, the divorce rate tends to rise. But as they start to consolidate those, and as men start to accept it, which we've found happening in many of the Western European countries and and increasingly in America, the divorce rate actually starts to decrease, even though it gets easier to get a divorce. And I think a couple of things are at work here. First of all, you can't just pretend you don't have the ability to leave the marriage. Uh, You know, you you do now. So you have to, when you're entering a marriage, you have to be realistic about the fact that divorce is a possibility, which means that you have to think through uh, whether you would want to go through that and what you would do to avoid it. I think the most important thing is that people are now being more selective in who they marry and when they marry. You know, there's increasing rise in the age of marriage. Increasingly, people are saying, well, I want to get my education. I want to get rid of my debts before I get married. All these things are good signs that a marriage uh, will last. And then once you enter that marriage, it is no longer what used to keep marriages together. The fact that women had no options no longer keeps marriages together. So the dynamics of how you handle disagreements and stuff changed too. It used to be that a woman, we women would just keep quiet because we didn't want to rock the boat. We didn't want him to leave us. We would be helpless without it, or we would just adjust to it. Or occasionally we'd get so mad that we'd ask for a divorce and he'd be blindsided by it. A lot of therapists say that this is what happened to their older couples because the man didn't even realize how much, how unhappy she was and was just not attuned to it. In today's modern couples, we have to be really clear, A, that we admire and respect the other person, because if you're constantly asking for change, you know that maybe you shouldn't have started this in the first place, but B, that you have the right to ask for change and to ask directly, and that this is something that should be discussed between you. And as that happened, I think we will get more marriages that, as we have been, the the divorce rate in the United States has been falling since the end of the 1970s. And particularly for educated couples. We're finding that men are less threatened by women. It used to be that 
it raised the risk of divorce if a woman had more education or earned more money than a man. And even today, you'll get these self-help people telling you, oh, you know, if you earn more money, be quiet about it. The man will be threatened. Well, if he's going to be threatened, you better off leaving him right now. But in general, most men are now able to accept that, and it is no longer a risk factor for divorce. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. Bye.